Y'all turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, where as, as Nathan said, I'm in a new series today uh, called Hero School. We're looking at people who did great things for God. And we have this idea that people who did great things for God in the Bible were just exceptional people. They were exceptionally strong, exceptionally brave, exceptionally smart, had incredible faith, and none of us really match up. But that's not the case. As you're going to see, as we look at each of these stories, and by the way, the Bible's got some great stories. If you grew up in, in church, you're going to enjoy hearing these stories again and hopefully learning something new from them. If you didn't grow up in church, you're going to find out how good the stories are here, how inspiring they are. But you'll see, these men and women were ordinary. They had faults. They had flaws. They had doubts and insecurities, just like us. And you'll see what God did to prepare them, to create in them the kind of heart, the kind of faith it took for them to change the world. And we're going to look today at Moses. But before we do, I wanted to tell you a quick story. So Dan Ariely is a psychology prof at Duke University. Teaches psych there. Um, he wrote a book a few years ago about how dishonest we are. How we tell little lies and don't even know we're lying. Uh, we're just so used to it. And here's kind of a funny story he told. He said, over the, over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of each semester. You know where I'm going, right? It happens mostly in the week before final exams and before papers are due. Guess which relative most often dies? Grandma. That's right. Poor grandma always bites the big one right before finals. I'm not making this stuff up. Another research study has shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Worse still, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are at even higher risk. Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than non-failing students. It turns out the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens in our day ends up being their grandchildren's GPA. The moral of all of this is, if you are a grandmother, don't let your grandchildren go to college. It'll kill you. Especially if they're not smart. So, you know, all of you who are in college, be careful because your grandmother's life is in your hands. So, we, we have excuses, don't we? We have excuses for everything. And I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know what God is saying to you today. What He's calling you to do. But the truth is, God is always calling us to do something. He never sits still. He's always at work in our lives. He's always... As we looked at in Ephesians 2.10, He created us in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared ahead of time for us to do. There's always something good you can and should be doing for God. And that's where your purpose is found. And when you're accomplishing that purpose, that's when you have fulfillment and you have joy. And that's when you're the person you need to be. And you won't regret it. But we have excuses for these things. Some of you, and again, I'm not the Holy Spirit, so if I look at you when I'm saying this, I'm not, I don't know what I'm talking about. I just know that in a room this size, there are going to be people who know there's a particular ministry they should be involved in, but they're not. Someone has come to them and said, hey, will you help me out here? Will you volunteer over there? Or you've seen, you've noticed a need in our community or in our church, and you've said, I ought to do something, but you haven't taken that step of obedience yet. Some of you know of a relationship in your life that things aren't right between you and this other person, and you also know exactly what you could do to help make things right. 
wouldn't solve everything, but if you would just take these one or two steps, you know that would pacify that person and bring them closer to you and things would work out. But you haven't done it yet. You're wanting them to come to you first. Some of you know, you know that, that there's somebody in your life that needs someone to speak truth to them. Someone who's headed in the wrong direction. Maybe they've got an addiction problem that they're not acknowledging. Maybe they don't know Christ. And someone needs to share Christ's love with them in a real and relevant way. But you know someone in your life that needs to be confronted. You just don't want to have that hard conversation. And you're putting it off. Some of you have been attending here for a while and you haven't decided yet if you want to join. But some of you know. Some of you know. And I'm not trying to rush anybody, but some of you know I need to commit myself to a church family. It's, it's, I've been part of the audience long enough. It's time for me to put my, put my money and my resources, my gifts and my talents and my time where my mouth is and just be a part of the body of Christ. Some of you know, some of you know that there's someone you need to forgive. And I know that's not easy to talk about. You've been holding on to that grudge long enough. It's been poisoning your soul. and You need to let go of it and just say, Lord Jesus, You forgave me. I'm giving them over to You. And I'm praying good things for them. And in a room this size, I sure hope there's at least one or two people who come here today and haven't yet given their heart to, to Christ and received salvation. And maybe that's your struggle. Maybe you're like, you know, I believe what the Bible says. I just haven't taken that step of faith yet of saying, I am a follower of Jesus. And here's what I know. I've been... I've been a Christian since I was nine. I've been in church since I was in my mother's womb. I, I've been a pastor since I was 20, what, 25, 26. Here's what I've learned. There's never, ever a convenient time to obey God. There's never a time when it's like, hey, this is easy. God's calling me to do this. There's no obstacles at all. I can just, I can just do what He said. There will always be an excuse. Between the world, the flesh, and the devil, there will always be something that stands in the way. So if you're waiting for all the obstacles to clear and for everything in life to line up just right where obeying God and doing what's right is easy, it will never happen. And a perfect example is this guy we're looking at today. Moses. We all know Moses, right? Even if you didn't grow up in church, every year at Easter time, ABC shows the Ten Commandments. And you know he's great because Charlton Heston played him. You know, Charlton Heston didn't play ordinary people. Moses was born, even, even the circumstances of his birth are amazing. Born to a Hebrew woman, a slave in Egypt. The Egyptians at that time had decided, well, we've got, a, we've got an immigration problem, so to speak. We've got too many Hebrews. They're multiplying faster than we are, so let's, let's kill every, every newborn Hebrew male. Moses' mother did a very brave but desperate thing. She put him in a basket after he was born and just put him in the river and said, Lord, you take care of him. Through the providence of God, he's picked up by the daughter of Pharaoh himself. He's raised in luxury and royalty, and yet when he becomes an adult, he comes to realize these are not my people. The Hebrews, these slaves are my people, and he tries to act on their behalf. He kills an Egyptian slave master. But instead of starting a revolution, he just becomes a fugitive from justice. And he runs away, runs into the wilderness, gets married to a Midianite young woman, and at the age of 80, he's tending his father-in-law's sheep out in the desert. 80. You don't expect anything new to happen in your life when you reach your 80s. You don't expect to get called on to do something courageous. And yet, that's exactly what happens. As Moses is tending those sheep, he sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. 
And he goes to see this, this incredible sight a little closer, and he hears a voice speaking to him from that bush, saying, Moses, I'm the God of your fathers. Take off your shoes. This place is holy. And then he tells him, your job, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to stand before Pharaoh, most powerful man on earth, and demand that he let my people go. And in fact, what God has planned is, I just want you to ask for a simple request. Just ask for three days to go into the wilderness and worship me. And he's going to be so against that, I'm going to use that as a wedge, use that as a tool to, to gain you your freedom. And what's interesting about the story, if you haven't read the story before, you'll be surprised. Moses does not want to do it. In fact, he comes up with five excuses. So what we're going to look at this morning are the five excuses Moses makes see if any of them resonate with you, and the five ways God responds to those excuses. So here's your assignment. Number one, stay awake. Number two, for every response of God, all five have something in common. I want you to see if you can detect the common thread in all five responses God makes to Moses' excuses. So let's look at them. We've got a lot of Scripture to read, so have your Bibles open. Chapter 3, verse 11 is Moses' first excuse. He says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So Moses' first excuse is, Who am I? And that's an excuse we often make. It's basically, how can I accomplish this? Who am I? I'm just a dummy. I, I'm no good. I'm just a loser. I've never accomplished anything. Why would you ask me? Why not ask that person over there who's much more accomplished and educated? And we say this, it's a very seductive excuse because it has the veneer of humility. We say it and we feel like I'm being so humble. By being down on myself, I'm being so humble. And that's not humility at all. It's not humility to say, who am I to do this? That's actually a lack of faith. Because what you're really saying is, God can't use someone like me. God is not capable of using someone like me. That is expressing a lack of faith in God. And when you read the Scriptures, the really interesting thing is, every person who God ever used was convinced of their own inadequacy. This is a common theme. In fact, the only person I can think of who was confident in his own, his own abilities was Samson. We'll get to him in a few weeks. And his confidence was a problem. Everybody else you read in Scripture, when God approaches them, they immediately all throw up their hands and say, wait, not me. He goes to Gideon. And Gideon says, wait, I'm the weakest person in the whole nation of Israel. Why me? He goes to Isaiah and says, preach my word. And Isaiah's like, but my lips are unclean. I, I speak nothing but foulness. Why would you choose me? He goes to Jeremiah and Jeremiah says, but I'm too young. He goes to Sarah. Sarah says, I'm too old. He goes to Mary and Mary says, but I've never even been with a man. How can I give birth to the Messiah? He goes to Paul and Paul says, I'm the worst sinner there's ever been. I persecuted your church. How can I possibly take the gospel to other nations? So if you have doubts about your own abilities, that's a pretty good sign. You're the kind of person God wants to use. If you're the kind of person who says, well, yeah, I can do it. I got this, God. Just give it to me. You need, a, you need a lesson in humility. But for the rest of us who feel inadequate, you are a candidate for God to do amazing things to. And that's the truth with Moses, and it's true for us. Second excuse, look at verse 13. This is a long passage, so stick with me. 
Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now I need to stop there. We're going to read the rest of this passage. But what God has just said in our English Bibles, it says, I am who I am. In Hebrew, it is one word. It's the word Yahweh. Very interesting word. It's, it's the covenant name of God. And it, it had never really been spoken before. I'm going to tell you some more about that in a moment. But that's, that tells you why God's about to launch into this long explanation. So listen to what he says in verse, we're in verse uh, 15, right? When did my print get that small? Okay, God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of the misery, out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Don't you love how God's got it all worked out? He's got it figured out. He doesn't always tell us in advance like He does here for Moses. In fact, He almost never does. But He has it figured out. Now, Moses' second excuse is, I don't even know who you are, Lord. What is your name? Who are you? Understand something about names in the ancient world. In the ancient world, a name was more than just something that you thought sounded good. A name was given by a parent to a child when they thought, this is what my child is going to grow up to be. A name was supposed to represent the characteristics of that human being. And so a parent would name a child something glorious, something something God-centered, something courageous, because they hoped they would grow into that. And sometimes in Scripture, you notice people, it'll say they were born this, but they came to be known as this. And that's because that child came to embody different characteristics. And they said, we need to give you a new name. I mean, I named you Jumbo and you're five foot two, so I need to give you some new name, right? So when Moses says, who are you? He's saying more than just, tell me your name. He's saying, what can you do about this? Okay, so you're very impressive. You made a burning bush. That's exciting. But we've been in slavery for 400 years. The gods of the Egyptians are clearly stronger than you are. I mean, otherwise, why haven't, where have you been all this time? We have no power. Who are you to say this thing to me? And God gives him this name. By the way, the name, anytime in your, in your English Bibles, when you see the name LORD spelled in all capital letters, that's not God shouting. LORD is the sign of that covenant name. It's the translation in English of the the Hebrew word Yahweh. And by the way, 
Yahweh, when you look at it in Hebrew Bibles, it's spelled with four letters. Y-H-W-H. Here's something interesting that doesn't benefit you at all. It's just kind of cool. They call that the tetragrammaton. It's a, it's a Latin word that means the four letters. I just think tetragrammaton is fun to say. It sounds like a, you know, a cartoon robot or something. But Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Why do they spell it that way? Because the Hebrew scribes were so reverent for the name of God. They didn't include the vowels in the name Yahweh so that that would make the name unpronounceable. Because they were afraid if it's pronounceable, people might use it in vain. So they spelled it that way. Isn't that a little different from our society today where even church-going people use the name of God just as a common exclamation? By the way, if you've heard the name Jehovah, that's the Latin version of Yahweh. It's basically transcribed into Latin. All that is free. It's not really the point of the message. The point is that Moses says, I don't know who you are, and God says, well, I am who I am. He gives him his name and it's basically a verb. I am. You can trust in me because of what I've done in the past, because of what I've got planned for your future. Third excuse. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Wouldn't you love to see Moses reaching out for the snake? I don't think he was confident as he reached for the snake. I'm just guessing. By the way, no snake handling today. That'll come another time. Just a joke. Just a joke, people. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that there may, they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it out on dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So Moses' third excuse is, well, what if they don't believe me? And by the way, that really resonates with me. I can identify with that. Because put yourself in the shoes of the Hebrews. They've been slaves for 400 years. If you've been a slave your whole life and your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents before them, and suddenly an 80-year-old guy you've never seen before shows up and says, hey, God spoke to me. Would you believe Him? And yet God's response is, I'll back you up. I've got you on this one. I can, I can prove myself to them through you if you'll just trust in me. And these three signs that God gives to Pharaoh, you may notice they all have something to do with a symbolism that will increase the faith of the Jews. For instance, Pharaoh wore a headdress, a, a helmet, so to speak, a hat that had a snake on the very front of it. Satan became a snake, transformed into a snake, took the appearance of a snake in the Garden of Eden to cause the first sin. So when God does this miracle through a snake, He is basically saying to the Israelites and to the Egyptians, I have power over your earthly enemy, Egypt, 
and your supernatural enemy, the devil. Skin diseases, the second miracle. Skin diseases were the most feared diseases in the whole ancient world. They knew that there were such things as heart attacks and cancer and the things that kill us, but you can't see those things without an x-ray. You can see a rash break out on someone. You can see someone's fingers and, and, and appendages start to fall off. And so people were terrified of skin diseases. In doing this miracle, God was saying, the things you fear the most, I've got control of them. I'm on, I'm on top of those things. And then when he turns the Nile into blood, think about it. Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth, and yet they lived in a desert. How were they able to have such power? Because they were on the banks of this mighty river, the Nile. So they never had to worry about rain. They never had to worry about weather. They had their constant source of water to drink, to bathe in, to, to water their crops. You take that away, and Egypt is nothing. It's a devastating blow to their economy. And keep this in mind. Eighty years before when Moses was a baby, the Egyptians were throwing male Hebrew babies into that Nile River. And that river ran red with the blood of, of young Jews. And now it's going to run red with the blood of God's judgment. God is showing His people, I'm in charge. You can trust Me. The fourth excuse, look at verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And scholars debate on this fourth excuse. The fourth excuse is, I don't know how to speak. I'm not a good speaker. And scholars debate, did Moses have a speech impediment? The, the actual Hebrew term he uses is, I am heavy of tongue. So that may indicate that. And yet, Stephen, in, in Acts chapter 7, when he's talking about Moses, he describes him as a man, a man mighty of speech. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, the whole book is basically Moses preaching to the Israelites. And it's powerful preaching. So I don't think Moses had a speech impediment. I think, I think he was making an excuse. And he was making this up because he was afraid. Do you know that in, in polls, when you ask people about their biggest fear, do you know what the number one fear people express is? It's not death. It's public speaking. True story. So the comedian Jerry Seinfeld has said, that means that if you, if you are at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than be the one giving the eulogy. Moses is even more afraid. Why? Because he doesn't just have to talk to people. He has to talk to the most powerful man on earth. He has to confront the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth, a man who could snap his fingers and have Moses put to death. And God says, don't worry about the words you're going to speak because I will give them to you. Isn't it good to know that when God sends us to talk to someone, whether it's a confrontational conversation or encouragement, whether it's trying to answer the questions of someone who doubts Christianity, whether it's just to share God's love in a practical way, isn't it good to know that when God sends you to talk to someone, He's already got the words for you to say? You can trust Him? It doesn't matter if you've never been eloquent before. It doesn't matter if you don't have the proper education. God wouldn't have sent you if He didn't want you. He'll give you the words. And then finally, the final response, verse 13 of chapter 4. 
But Moses said, oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. And this, I love this one. In Hebrew, he literally says, send, I beg you, by the hand of whom you will send, which is the Hebrew version of anybody but me, Lord. That's his excuse. Anybody but me. So here's how God responds. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if you, he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. So in this response of God, we see both his kindness and his severity. We see both his wrath and his grace. Because the wrath is that God says, I wanted you to do this. I wanted you to have the, the joy of being the one person I use to accomplish great things. But I'm going to use Aaron instead. Notice he calls him Aaron the Levite. Why does he call him that? It's sort of an odd way of referring to someone, especially to someone's brother. I, I doubt someone would say to me, hey, Jeff, you know your brother Billy the Burger? I mean, it, it, that's not how you talk. So why does God say that? Because the Levitical tribe, the tribe of the Levites, were the, were the, the tribe of Israel from which the priesthood comes. All Levites were not priests, but some were. Moses had the opportunity, most Bible scholars agree, Moses had the opportunity to be the first high priest of Israel. A line that would extend all the way to Jesus. Jesus would become our final, once and for all high priest who makes intercession between God and man. Moses had that opportunity, but he wasted it. God said, I'll use Aaron. And so Moses had that experience of some time later of taking those glorious priestly vestments that God had, had custom designed and placing them on his brother and taking the blood, the sacrificial blood, and dabbing it on Aaron's earlobe and his thumb and his big toe and saying, okay, you are the one who stands between God and man. That's God's wrath because there's always consequences when we disobey. We believe in a God of grace and He forgives, absolutely, but He doesn't take away the consequences. And here's the thing. If you're making excuses today for why you can't obey God, and someday you come to your senses and you obey, you'll always regret that time you procrastinated. You'll look back and you'll think, why did I wait so long? But we also see grace. Because in any other line of work, if, you, if, if your boss at work tells you to do something, once you get to the fifth excuse, you're already out of a job, right? God has not given up on those. He says, I'm going to bring in Aaron. He's going to be your helper. But you're still my man. I'm still using you. Now at the beginning of the message, I asked you two things. I asked you, what is God calling you to do? What is God calling you to do? Another way to ask that question is, if tomorrow morning you woke up and you were 100% absolutely committed to God, if you had to testify on, earth, on oath and you said, there is nothing in me that I'm holding back from Him from now on, I am 100% His, what would be different about your life now than was before? How would your life change if you gave everything? So what are you holding back? The second thing I asked you is, look at the... Look at the responses God gives to Moses' excuses, and what do they have in common? Let's walk through them real quickly again. God, Moses says, who, are, who am I? And God says, it doesn't matter, because I'm me. I'll be with you. 
Moses says, well, who are you? And God says, I am what I am. I am the God of your fathers. I can do this. Moses says, well, what if they don't believe me? And, and God says, I will show my power to them. I will prove myself to them. Moses says, well, I can't speak well. God says, I'll give you the words. Moses says, send someone else. And God says, well, I will send someone else, but I'm going to be with you too. What's the common thread in all those five? God is the common thread. For every excuse Moses makes, God is the answer. For every excuse we have, every reason we have not to obey, God would say, yeah, but, but I'm God. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you think is in the way of you doing my will. I'm God and I can make this happen. Your job is simply to say yes. When Moses had overcome his excuses and he had done the impossible and led the children of Israel out of slavery, it's never happened before and it, and it probably will never happen again, that a group of slaves freed themselves with no human agency doing it. When Moses had made that happen, had parted the Red Sea, had, had seen the Egyptian economy and military devastated, and now was leading this group of people toward a promised land that was just custom made for them. In his older years, he's preaching these sermons that we know as Deuteronomy, and he said, someday, God's going to send another prophet like me. And when he comes, listen to him. And as the generations passed, the Jews would read those words and they would understand he's not talking about just a human prophet. He's talking about someone greater. And then David came along and they realized, well, there's going to be a son of David that will reign forever. And then Isaiah came along and talked about unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And over time, they began to call this person Messiah. We're waiting for Messiah. We're waiting for that second Moses, that second David, that suffering servant, that Son of God. And when He came, He had a much tougher job than Moses had. Moses had to face down Pharaoh. Jesus had to face down death itself and all the forces of hell. Moses feared for his life. Jesus knew He would die. He knew He wouldn't survive this rescue mission. And He knew that His death would be as painful and humiliating as any death ever in history. And yet, Jesus never made one excuse. Not once. He never said, but, but. He had fears. He had doubts. The night before He died, He expressed them to the Father. That's who you make excuses to. You, you share with Him, here are my doubts, here are my fears, but I'm giving them over to you. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And He went joyfully courageously to that cross so we could be free. Free for what? Not just for heaven, but free to follow Him down here and accomplish the purpose for which He created us. Free to be part of His plan to transform this whole world. So whatever is holding you back from doing what you know God wants you to do, just remember who you're talking to. You're talking to the great I Am.